how many natives can read. And it was like, that was a statistical data set. Who's capable of reading, who's not? When you think about that, it's really racist. You know, it's horrible. But now when we think about data sovereignty, it's like, what questions are we asking? What data is appropriate to collect? Who should be collecting it? That's Daphne Little Bear, and this is the Powerful Ladies Podcast. Hey guys, I'm your host, Kara Duffy. Statistics and education are a part of our everyday lives in American culture. What we don't often think about is how the presentation of education to kids can change their acceptance to or trust in that education. Similarly, we often are not looking at how our data is being gathered for us to make decisions as a community. Today's guest, Daphne Little Bear, is taking on all of that for Indigenous and Native communities in America. I'm excited for you to hear her journey and to get a new perspective on what it means to be counted and understood in America. Well, I am really excited to get to have a conversation with you today. Yeah, me too. Let's begin. Please tell everybody your name, where you are in the world, and what you're up to. Yeah, so my name's Daphne Littlebear. I am in Santa Ana, Pueblo, New Mexico. I'm also um, from Santa Ana, Pueblo. I'm also Creek Shawnee and Yuchi from Oklahoma. So I'm an indigenous woman. And you're working on a really amazing dissertation right now. Uh, your dissertation is Affirming the Educational Sovereignty of Santa Ana Pueblo, the Intersections, Community-Based Education, Western Schooling, and Tribal Citizenship. Yeah, that is correct. So that is my working title for my dissertation. I'm currently in the final stages and hope to defend in um, coming this summer of 2022. So soon to be Dr. Dr. Little Bear. Which is so exciting. Congratulations. Um, what will your doctorate be in? Because most people hear doctor and they think either psychology or they think medical doctor. What, what will your doctorate degree be in? So my doctorate will be a doctorate of philosophy and social justice education. Which is very powerful and very needed right now. Um, how long have you been working on that? And, and how did you know that that's the path that you want to take? Well, I actually didn't really know that was the path. I didn't think I was going to get a doctorate. Like I wasn't, that wasn't something that I planned for. It wasn't something that I didn't even really know what a doctorate degree was. (laughs) So I guess I could start there. Um, So I actually started um, my doctoral program in 2015, fall of 2015. So it's been a while, I actually took some time off in the dissertation writing phase because, you know, I had lost my father and I think I needed to step back and take some time to mourn and grieve the loss of my father. And so I've been recently getting back into it, but it's been really challenging to work um, throughout, um, throughout the pandemic because mm-hmm. I, I also work full time. Um, with the American Indian Higher Education Consortium as their deputy um, director of research in um, student success. 
Um, so I'm working full time. I'm trying to finish this doctorate as well as, um, you know, I have a family and I'm very involved in my community here in Santa Ana. Mm-hmm. So you just have a few things going on. No big deal. <laughs> yeah, I have a few things going on. And, you know, I like to support my friends and, and indigenous community as much as I can. So yeah, just have a, a few things happening, but it's all very exciting. It's all very community oriented. And I think, you know, we all support each other and each other's goals. But um, yeah, so I didn't know. I, I'm actually a first gen. Mm-hmm. So um, I had my daughter when I was fairly young. Uh, you know, I didn't know. Uh, my mom kind of just advised me at the time. She, you know, she had put to me that I needed to do something with my life. Like she wanted me to do something with my life. I was a young mother and she, you know, said, you can either work full time, you know, or go back to school and I will help you as best as I can. And so at the time I was like, all right, I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to college. Um, I went to junior college, it actually a tribal, it was a tribal college here in New Mexico called um, Southwestern Indian Polytechnical Institute. And um, I went there and I, you know, declared liberal arts as a major, didn't really know what liberal arts was. No one in my family, you know, didn't have their bachelor's degree or didn't really go to college. So um, I started there and, you know, finished with a small infant child and transferred on to um, the University of New Mexico. Um, how I got there was one of the advisors at the tribal college. She was so supportive of all students. Like, you know, mm-hmm. being a young mother, I was working retail. So I was working retail, going to school. And I think I was just really overwhelmed and I went to one of my advisors and I was crying because I was like, I don't know, I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. This is hard. And um, anyhow, when I got close to near to graduation, she was like, you got to go on. Like you're, you're not done yet. Like you still got to go and get your bachelor's degree. And I was like, what was that? What's a bachelor's degree? <laughs> and um, so she helped me fill out the paperwork and I transferred, uh, went in as a transfer student and went to the University of New Mexico and declared um, my major in sociology. And at the time I was like wanting to go to law school. So, you know, everything was geared towards pre-law, um, mm-hmm. you know, so I did a minor in English to do pre-law. And so um, when I started taking social classes, I had an amazing professor um, she was a statistician and she just like worked us so hard that I really enjoyed statistics. I really enjoyed, you know, running, you know, analysis and learning how, you know, data mm-hmm. is collected. And that's where my kind of passion grew for research. Um, and what we call, you know, I'll get into it a little bit, but that was a very Western way of research that I learned and, and, um, one of the things I remember is like, there's not a lot of databases that focused in like for Native Americans or indigenous people or mm-hmm. even people of color. It's all very generalized. And so anyhow, I, you know, I learned these skills and working with my classmates, they were talking about this program called Ronald E. McNair. Mm-hmm. And it's a research program. So 
they're like, you gotta, um, they're like, we're all going to apply. You should apply. So, um, I applied to the program, got accepted. And the Ronald E program is actually to help, um, to help, you know, um, low income students of color, um, first generation students, um, actually aspire to graduate studies. So that's kind of, yeah. So Mm -hmm. that's where that kind of all started. And, you know, I started in that program and they were like, you're going to do a full research. You're going to complete, um, an IRB, which is an institutional review board application for an original study. And you're going to work with a professor and a mentor, and we're going to, you know, um, guide you on, on what it means to become a researcher and how to apply to graduate school. And so um, it was a very tedious project, and I was still working retail at the time. <laughs> I, you know, my daughter was you know, growing up, a toddler, mm-hmm. I would take her everywhere with me. And I was still very much involved in my, my community. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, getting involved in that research program, I wanted to be involved in like student activities. I wanted to contribute to the community. So, you know, I became um, the president of a student organization. And it was called Nasser. And from there, we just, you know, pre- we worked on research, presented mm-hmm. at conferences, presented very at cool. conferences and traveled. And um, just fast forward, like years mm-hmm. later, um, you know, graduated. I was, a fir- like I said, I was a first gen graduate of my family. And post-graduation, it was 2000, 2008. And that was a mm-hmm. recession. That yeah. was a really rough time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I, I didn't really have a job line like lined up. I went back to work retail. Um, and I think, you know, I started working, you know, found a position with my tribe working in um, a tribal education department. So the tribal education department is similar to um, a state education department, but it's for the tribe. Mm-hmm. And so this is where my career started in education. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was working with the tribe, you know, law school was always a goal. So mm-hmm. I did apply to law school and, you know, I, I went through a program like a pre-law summer program and I thought law school's not really for me. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I enjoy reading the law. I enjoy understanding it, but I don't know if I really want to become a lawyer. I want to mm-hmm. work in like educational policy or, edu- or become an advocate of educational like better educational systems for Native students. And so I ended up going to get my MPA mm-hmm. with a focus in ed leadership. So I took a couple of classes in the ed leadership program. And um, during the same time, I started, um, you know, one of my friends had asked me to run for the school board, the local school board. And, you know, I, I looked into it. I went to, um, there's a training program at the time. I can't remember what it's called, but it was for women of color to see if they wanted to run for public office. And it, I just felt overwhelmed. I was like, I'm not ready to do that. That, that seems like a lot of work. I think it's mostly like the election process that yeah. intimidated me, you know, to mm-hmm. put myself out there because, um, you could do the work, but the election part's a whole other beast. <laughs> yeah, the election part's a whole nother beast. And I think 
I don't know, but I just, I've always had this kind of fear of putting myself out in a public way like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it felt super real. If you had to run for the school board, you would have to put yourself out like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was, and I also didn't feel confident in my abilities a little bit. Like I felt, you know, I still needed to grow, but, um, so anyhow, my friend, I was telling one of my other friends, like, you know, I don't think I'm going to run. I don't think I'm ready. And they're like, well, I'm going to nominate you for a different board. Um, and it was the National Indian Education Association. They're like, we'll nominate you for that. You can run as a student since you're still in grad school. And I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> it's like, no, not the local board. I'll do the national board. <laughs> Um, and it's, you know, NIA, it's a national, um, organization. It's over 50 years old. Um, they do a lot of advocacy for indigenous education, um, and their headquarters is in DC. So they do advocacy on the Hill. They do advocacy regionally, locally, um, Mm -hmm. you know, with state agencies and they do, they also are, have becoming a technical assistance center for, for, um, Indigenous educators across the nation. Very cool. So you're um, diving into the Indigenous educational system in at least the U.S. Where, where is it doing great? And, and where, where are the gaps that continue to show up where advocates like you are just so important? So one thing is that for Indigenous, so if you look at any statistics when it comes to education, you're always mm-hmm. going to notice that Native students um, are very low performing in mm-hmm. a lot of areas. Um, but I don't think that really tells the story of Native students fully. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, um, I have the standpoint that, you know, student based assessments are inherently racist testing systems. Um, and then it too, there's inadequate services and resources that are, that are channeled to, um, what we call like native serving districts, like school districts or school mm-hmm. systems. Mm-hmm. And this is going to bring up another part of it, but, um, so there's what we call schooling, right? Public, mm-hmm. um, American public schooling that's called schooling. And then there's indigenous education. So indigenous education um, is any type of learning that takes place within an indigenous setting. Um, Like within our community, it could be like native languages. Mm -hmm. It could be native farming. It could be, um, you know, creating regalia. It could be like any type of learning. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, indigenous people have, have, you know, have all these different unique skill sets that have allowed us to flourish for so many centuries and so many years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that those aspects of indigenous identity are not necessarily incorporated in American mm-hmm. schooling systems. Mm-hmm. We barely even know the history of indigenous people in public schooling. Like I growing yeah. up didn't learn my own history until I was in college and I had to seek that out for myself. Mm-hmm. So we're we're dealing with a very inherently racist system. And then on the other side, if we go back to history, um, 
there is um, a policy called the Indian boarding schools. Yeah. And Indian boarding schools are, um, what they did was they kidnapped indigenous students. Like, so, so a long time ago, you know, when they were organizing these boarding schools, it went, they was, it was the U.S. government organizing these boarding schools a lot with, um, with, um, um, with churches, like, mm-hmm. you know, different, like, um, the Catholic church, the, you know, Christian churches, they received funds, federal funds from the U.S. government to organize these boarding schools. And so, um, these boarding schools weren't necessarily to, to empower indigenous people or students. They were more or less to acculturate us and to assimilate mm-hmm. us into American society. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it's really, it's a really heavy, heavy history for this mm-hmm. country and for us. Yeah. But when you think about how education was introduced to indigenous people, that, that, that overarching kind of idea is still very much present in today's school systems. And, yeah. you know, if you, you can even like search, there's a, gosh, I'm trying to remember what the, what the organization is called, but it's the National Boarding School Building Coalition. Mm-hmm. And um, they are based in the north um, west region of the country. And they are about truth and healing and um, truth and healing in terms of like, what is the true history? What is the, heal- what is the healing that is taking place? And how can allies support in um you know and support and support in in truth and healing for indigenous communities um currently there this is really sad but there are um, mass graves that are currently being unrevealed in canada and in this country of children who attended these boarding schools and so i you know for myself as an advocate it's it's you know, telling these true histories, but mm-hmm. also um, our children have to go to school. It's kind of, a, it's a state law, right? It's yeah. a state law, but our our children deserve opportunities. They deserve to flourish. They deserve to, you know, um, be who they are. Mm-hmm. And how do we make education systems healthy for them? You know, how do we yeah support that how do we target resources for them to flourish in these systems now um things are not perfect but they are getting better um you you see um so here locally i will say um there's a school it's not in the public schooling but it's more in a tribally controlled school it's the santa fe and then public um santa fe and then santa fe indian school and mm-hmm. they're just doing phenomenal things up there, you know, with their curriculum, um, with their services. And it's it's really governed by um, the 19 pueblos here. And, it, you know, even the educators there are flourishing in terms of how do they indigenize their curriculum. And a lot of their students are going to, um, you know, very elite like elite universities, you know, Stanford, mm-hmm. Harvard, um, public institutions. So, you know, I think it is, it's just creating these opportunities for our students to really truly learn and be who they are and, mm-hmm. and have, 
education as an exchange rather than like a top down like the teacher, right? So they're learning mm-hmm. together. Yeah. There is um even in the completely western uh, American schools that I've been to there were still conversations of how do we approach people where they are and it's I've been to 11 different schools growing up. We moved a ton and seeing just how different schools in different cities and states taught differently whether it was, you know, how can kids perform in 700 size, you know, grades or how can kids perform when there's only 80 kids in a grade and seeing the differences, the education system in the U.S. is something that I know at some point I will get more involved in because I've seen different things. And to me, like I'm, I'm a lover of learning and Mm -hmm. I just, I want other people to know that if you love learning, you can literally learn whatever you want and create whatever you want. And I, it breaks my heart hearing these stories you're sharing of, of people resisting, um, or not resisting because it wasn't on the, on, on them, but like being introduced to education in a way that makes you want to resist it because it, it was forced or it was aggressive or it just was like, taking, stripping away your identity in order to have it, which is all heartbreaking. Yeah. You know, and I think, like I said, there are systems that are getting better, but there's, there's still so much work to be done. Um, and this month it's, I know this episode is not going to air till later, but Mm -hmm. we are currently in November and it's Native American Heritage Month. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the ways to get involved is to just um, start, you know, following some Native-driven organizations. Um, a lot of these Native jo- organizations have, like, call to action of how you, mm-hmm. we can support each other, how allies can support, um, you know, even just sharing their information with, um, you know, with your with your network of, of friends or network of professionals it supports because, I think a lot of it has to do with just recognizing um, the history that happened and then Mm -hmm. being like, okay, that history happened. Um, Where are we now and how can I support? And Mm -hmm. a lot of these organizations talk about, um, you know, if we are doing these action movements that Indigenous people be at the forefront of the conversations, that we take their lead and what they are asking for, because each region is completely different and mm-hmm. and what kind of supports that they need. So I guess for me, it was, you know, working with the tribal education department, working with the public schools that really got me interested. And then, you know, my, my um, aspiration to be, um, to go to law school was like reading, you know, these case laws about, mm-hmm about how it's impacted us and and looking at mm-hmm. educational policy and being, wow, this is like a, a really huge thing. So, you know, that's why I ended up going to get my master's and ended up working with um, NIEA. And, um, you know, towards the end of my master's program, I always, you know, it was, so the, one of the reasons that I didn't go to law school, not one, but this, this actually stands out in my head is, um, when I was telling one of my mentors, like, oh, I applied for law school. And she looked at me and she told me, she's like, Daphne, you're not a lawyer. You're a researcher. And I was crushed. <laughs> I was like, Why are you telling me this? I already applied. 
where I'm already in the process of applying. Mm-hmm. And it's not that, you know, it's just weird because I, I, she saw me in a different light that I guess I didn't recognize in myself. Mm-hmm. But um, when I was finishing my master's program, I knew I wanted to go at my doctorate. I just didn't know where. And then this opportunity presented itself with Arizona State um, University. And it was a program that was focused for Pueblo people, um, you know, Pueblo Indigenous people within New Mexico. And it was in um, social justice studies. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I have, you know, I'm a planner. So I've always mm-hmm. had like my letter, um, my personal statement, my CV updated. I always had like a reference list of people I would ask for recommendation letters. Like I always had this tucked away, like it was just ready to use at some day. And I, I saw the application date. It was like, I think I had a month to apply. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, that's really short time. But I was like, mm-hmm. okay, I can do this. And I literally rushed around, got everything really last minute and applied. And um, it was really scary because I was like, I don't know how this is like, I don't know, like, we'll see what happens. Right. Yeah. And um, I finished up my master's. So that was another thing that was like um, another highlight because I was not only first gen for a bachelor's, but first gen for getting a master's in my family. And <laughs> thank you. And at the time, um, you know, I was with my tribe working for my tribe for six years, but I wanted to grow. I wanted to grow professionally and I resigned from my tribe and that was really hard. Um, and I had another position lined up, but um, it was like a turning point, you know, it was mm-hmm. a turning point because I, I this other position I took was advice, um, worked for a community college as, a vi- as an advisor. So it was a way, a little bit away from my focus area of working with Native students, but I just felt like I needed to grow professionally. And so it seemed like all these things were kind of tangent up in the air at one point. And, um, you know, the, I didn't stay very long with the community college. It was like, I, um, I think I only stayed for about six months and I thought this isn't where I need to be. Mm-hmm. And I resigned. And, um, around the time that I resigned, I had nothing. Like I didn't have a job. I didn't know if I was going to go back to grad school. I didn't, haven't heard whether I was accepted or not. Mm-hmm. And I, it just felt super scary. It felt so scary because I, that wasn't like me. I would always have something lined up before I left a mm-hmm. position or I would have a part-time job or I would know, I would know what I was doing. Um, I would say about a week later after I resigned from my position um, on our feast day. So we have feast days um, here in the Pueblo and it was on our feast day, um, July 25th. And I got a, a phone call from an Arizona area code and I answered the phone and it was Dr. Elizabeth Samita Human who called me and said, congratulations, you um have been accepted into the program and um we just need to we'll give you some time whether you want to accept but i just wanted to call you personally and let you know that you have been selected to be um in the cohort in the public cohort and focused in um justice studies and um we look forward to hearing back whether you would like to um start the program 
And I was like, oh my God, is this really happening? <laughs> happening? Right. So I I was like, well, thank you. I appreciate you calling. Um, yeah, like I just didn't, I don't even know how I ended the conversation. I just know that I like I was standing in the living room with my family and I was like looking around. I told him I got accepted, like I'm gonna start the doctoral program. Like mm-hmm. this is happening right now. And everyone was super excited for me, but none of my family knew what a doctor program was. <laughs> <laughs> like, all they've known is like I've been in school probably forever from their perspective yes forever it's like you know and being first gen you get these comments where it's like they're happy but they don't really know what it is or mm-hmm. they're like well what does that mean like are you gonna get a job like are you you know because for my my mother's gener like my mother my auntie and their generation like success was getting a government job or working mm-hmm. with a really high profile company where you have benefits right and you mm-hmm. get a retirement like for them that was like security like their mm-hmm. sense of success is like this the security of of having um a, a constant paycheck and i think for my generation i feel like i mean i don't know if it's my generation or if things have shifted because the market shifted right you mm-hmm. don't you don't see a lot of people in positions for 20 30 years anymore right not at all and then for me it was like how do i explain to my family that i just don't want to be somewhere like for 20 or 30 years how do i explain to them and how can i like have them be proud of me that that i'm taking on my life in a different way Mm -hmm. and that you know this engaging in in college or working or being part of a move an, a, a movement for indigenous people looks different mm-hmm. and I'll be okay <laughs> like, yeah like, I'll be okay like I'm not gonna you know not have a like I'm not gonna starve I'm not gonna like I have a home I you know mm-hmm. I have a vehicle I have income like I can support myself in this way it just may not look like what they want for me so I think that was a really hard thing for my family to accept. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just had to tell them to trust me and that and that I have like I don't know where I'm going, but I have a sense of what I need to do to get there. <laughs> that sounds that sounds interest a little bit weird, but it made sense to me. And I think the reason why it felt good is because I surrounded myself with like-minded people, mm-hmm. right? And I just had amazing friends that were kind of in the same boat. I had mentors. And not only that, but when I started the doctoral program, you're around different conversations that you may not be around like in other spaces. And so um, I was like, so for me, I was like, okay, this doctoral program, I'm going to finish. I'm going to, you know, work in academia. But now, like almost at the end of it, it's different. Like, I'm not sure what's going to happen for me in the future, but I'm starting to plan. And there's a few things I've learned along along the way, but the doctoral program for me, I guess starting it, it was amazing because I had a cohort of 11. There was a cohort of 11. And so I had mm-hmm. 10 other um, Pueblo scholars that I worked with um, that we learned together. And they're all in different types of fields, whether it be education, whether it be um, planning, 
um, mm-hmm. whether it be the household. And I think we all supported each other through the process. And I do miss them because some of them have graduated and some of them we're still working on our dissertation. But um, but for me now, um, I guess during this part when I started the doctoral work, I actually found a position. I um, like, again, I was between things. I was doing contract work. And I think this is where my family was kind of worried. They're like, yeah. you need a job, right? Um, but I found a position and it was with the New Mexico um, Public Education Department working in the Indian Education Office. Mm-hmm. And that job um, was more of educational policy focused. And when I was working there, I was working full time and doing my doctoral work full time. Mm-hmm. So it was like double. And of course, um, it's a lot. You know, yeah, it was, it was a lot. And when I walked into the position, I, I always knew working for a state agency was political, but I wasn't like, I didn't feel like I was prepared for what I was going to enter into. Mm-hmm. And this was also, um, when I got my state job, part of my family was really, really, really happy because it, because this was something that they knew, like, they were like, oh, you have a government job. That's amazing. Like, you can stay there for 30 years <laughs> and you can retire and then you'll be taken care of. And I was just like, didn't want to burst their bubble, but I wasn't going to stay there for 30 yeah, years. You're like, mm. mm-hmm. yeah, like I just let them have their moment and I was just took their advice. But when I took on the position, um, it was really focused on on educational policy, um, educational sovereignty. And actually we have this piece of legislation here in New Mexico that's called the Indian Education Act. And it was operationalizing the act into real um, practices on the ground. Cool. So um, we had just passed, they had just recently passed um, every student succeeds act at the federal mm-hmm. level that required tribal consultation and so that was part of my job was um carrying out tribal consultation here in new mexico like um you know training training the school districts on what tribal consultation is um supporting the tribes and and how to have a meaningful consultation mm-hmm. and not only that but I, another part of my job was um was um, making sure, because we received um, appropriations um, through the state, and it was, pro- um, you know, providing grants um, and funding to the tribes and to the school districts. So I did a lot of managing the tribal um, the tribal grants to the school districts and to the um, to the tribes as well. Mm-hmm. And then we had an annual report that we had to produce every year. So I worked with our team in producing this annual report every every year, which um, the annual report was to to give our stakeholders a sense of where we were um, at in Indigenous education in New Mexico. And there was other initiatives and other conversations in the building, but it was really interesting working for the state. It was interesting to be in that building and understand how educational policy is formed in New Mexico and who was part of the conversations and who was driving those conversations and, you know, where and how, how we received funding and how it got delivered. And 
thinking, also probably manifesting too, like that we could do better Mm -hmm. um, and working with educators across the state and how we could do better for our students. Um, I'm no longer with the state anymore, (laughs) but for the time being, it was, you know, um, my first position as an administrator. And it was really interesting for me to be um, at that level, mm-hmm. but to also learn and how I could support. And and that was a lot of um, what I did also was train my colleagues on cultural competency yeah. um, within the actual um, within the actual like administration. And so a lot of the times, you know, I was invited to work with my colleagues in other offices and how do we better engage Indigenous communities or how can we get the message out there, um, you know, or can you take a look at this and, and, and you know, we need tribal voice in this, in this um, policy. So that was mm-hmm. really good to be, I felt like a diplomat a lot yeah. of the time. It was like well, very I- diplomatic work. And I would imagine, you know, as first generation and and being of both the western american world and the indigenous american world you probably feel like you're an ambassador every day like you're tra- you're translating back and forth every day and being like uh actually or i have a question like i feel like that's what you're you and you must feel like that every day is that is that accurate Yes, that is accurate. Um, Like I said, I'm not with the state. I moved um, again with the state. I I wanted to move up in my career. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I found myself at a crossroads. Like I could stay here, you know, a few more years or I can see what else is out there. And um, one of my mentors, um, she's, you know, located in DC and she's been so amazing to me, but she has sent me a job announcement for the position I'm at now. And she's just like, you should apply Daphne. I think, you know, um, even if it, even if it's applying just for the audition, like you Mm -hmm. should see how this looks and feels. And so at the time I had hit kind of like, you know, I think in every position you get to a point where it's like, okay, I've learned my job. I do my job well. Like what yeah. else? Like, do I move up? Um, do I take on a new project or do I do something else? And so that was at that point with the state, like, um, I don't know. I think, if I can... Oh, and I think that speaks to you being curious, right. And you learn like, cause there are people who get so happy in what they're doing, but I love the fact that you're like, okay, I'm bored. I've grown out of this. What's next? <laughs> Yeah, or I want to grow more, or mm-hmm. I I feel like I have so much more to offer. I think for me, it's always like, yeah, I have so much more to offer, you yeah. know. And and sometimes I feel like my skill sets are not being utilized to the full capacity that c- they could be. And so I'm like, how can I utilize my skill set more? Well, you, and I'm sure every day you're seeing the gap that still needs to be corrected and filled and you're like guys we have so much work to do let's go yeah exactly (laughs) and and I just so I applied for this position with AHAC and AHAC is um an advocacy group um an advocacy organization um in Washington DC as well and they do advocate for 
educational sovereignty in higher education for tribal colleges and universities. And as you recall, I started off at a tribal college um, here in New Mexico. So it just felt like, wow, like I'm at this point in my life where, where I can apply for this position. And I actually get to be in a position to support Native our tribal college students and Native mm-hmm. students in a different way. Like that was me years ago. <laughs> that was yeah. me years ago thinking of what what is college, right? What what does that even mean? Mm-hmm. And um, the interview was probably the most amazing interview that I've ever had in my life. The interview wasn't like um, a one-sided conversation. It was more of a discussion. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the next day I was offered the position. And I was really excited. Yeah, I was really excited about it because, you know, it was the first time I actually negotiated a salary that I was worth. Um, And that felt like an accomplishment in itself because I don't think I was ever in a, like, no, 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 I take that back. I don't think I was ever comfortable discussing a salary that that I needed, Mm -hmm. you know, for myself and my family. And I, I want to emphasize that because I've worked with um, Mariposa Strategies. She's here in New Mexico. She's an amazing coach. And I, I want to kind of say a little bit about that too. And I mm-hmm. also started um, taking some workshops from Native American Lead. And they're an amazing organization. And I think they train they changed the way that I view myself as, mm-hmm. as a woman of color, um, you know, professional whether, you know, whatever that looks like. And I just felt like, had I not engaged in some of um, those networks, Mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't have had the courage to ask for a salary um, for myself that I was worth. And I want to pause for a second because I want to just acknowledge you for like who you are for yourself, right? Because you're, you know, I hear that you are motivated to keep pushing and what's next and how else can I make an impact so much for the communities and the people that you're serving and the students. But it's also like you, like you're, it sounds like you are so good at, at listening to the voice in your head or your heart. That's like, there's more, like go for more because, you know, there are all these amazing programs and these leadership opportunities and you keep being like, I'll do that. And, and maybe it doesn't feel as confident when you say yes right away, but like you keep doing it. So like, I just want to say like, good for you, Daphne, like good for you for being like, we are doing more. I want more. And it's as a coach, I, I, nothing breaks my heart than people being like, I don't know not for me. And to see you just like, I'll take this and I want this and yes, I'll have that. And I'll work. Yes, yes, yes. Like I, I just, I've just met you and I just feel this over sensing feeling of just like, I'm, I'm impressed of like, what a badass you are. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, I really have to credit my community, my family, mm-hmm. and even my, my, my friends. Um, mm-hmm. my chosen families because I'm just surrounded by very strong women around mm-hmm. and 
you know, we all have our pitfalls. We all have those days where we're like, I don't know what we're doing. Mm -hmm. We cry together, but we manifest our dreams together and we give each other feedback. And I think that's what that that's kind of where I'm at, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and I think I'm really brutally honest with myself sometimes where it's, it is overwhelming. It is difficult and there are a lot of barriers, but I will, I will attribute, um, my, my resiliency to my family because, you know, I was raised by, um, a lot of single women and my grandmother was a widower. And Mm -hmm. so very early in her marriage. And so to me, it was like, they, you know, they, they, I don't know if they, like, it was a, it was more of a survival, Mm -hmm. you know, survival. Like we got to do this for our families. We got to do this for our children. We got to do this for our communities. And I will say now, um, my mom, she worked, you know, in a factory job, like my whole life until Mm -hmm. later in her life, like she's doing what she wanted to do all these years now. Mm-hmm. My mother is a native language teacher and she worked in like wellness programs. And, and she's like, right now I look at her and I'm like, you finally get to do the work that you wanted to do. And, and I, you know, I think this is part of like first gen or even like BIPOC first gen is that, is that, um, have I felt guilty about being, um, selfish? Uh, I'm not maybe felt guilty about pursuing my own path in my own way. Yeah. I felt like sometimes that's been mm-hmm. selfish, but I also feel like it's not selfish because this is what our parents and our ancestors wanted for us. But, you know, unfortunately the era or times that they grew up in provided a different type of like mm-hmm. limited possibilities or opportunities. And so sometimes I feel like our generations, like we clash, but I also feel like, like we clash because we experience things different, but we also love each other because we're supporting each other. And, you know, um, I get to have, I get to have this, how would you say this? Like, I feel very fortunate to be able to do the things I've done in my life or, or be who I wanted to be in my life because maybe my grandmother didn't. Yeah, I don't know how. I, I I think that's really hard to talk about that, you know those those intergenerational things. But I think it's important mm-hmm. to acknowledge them as well. Yeah, it's it's. I th- I think especially it's part of the female experience, right? Because you know each generation keeps having more and more opportunities than the ones before us, and um, it there's we, you know, we're, we're fighting the fight or we're doing the work that our grandparents or grandmothers and great grandmothers and even mothers like couldn't have imagined was even a choice that we had. Um, you know, I want to come back to something that you said earlier about the power of statistics and why you ended up in this research space, because, you know, so often decisions are made every day about data. And if the data is incomplete or bad or old or outdated, like we can't, there's, you know, we can't get back to the truth of what we're trying to discuss, right? There's so much conversation Mm -hmm. about fake news right now. And 
Um, it is easy to rearrange statistics so that they suit what you want to argue, mm-hmm. but it really comes down to a root of just having the data in the first place, which is what you're creating for people or have been throughout your career. How, how I would love for you to speak to that of like needing the statistical data for the native and indigenous populations in the U S like give people a sense of like how much of that is missing. Um, for those who have no idea about this uh, topic at all. So there's, it's not a new concept, but it is, um, a new, a new, um, theory to academia, um, that's becoming, um, increasingly more, um, people are more well aware of it. It's called in, um, data sovereignty. And there is a group of indigenous scholars that focus on data sovereignty, um, in, and they're, you know, they've been publishing a lot of work about, um, about data sovereignty and tribes controlling their own data. And, and, data and that's production. what, da- and that's what data sovereignty means. Like the data is coming from the people the data is about. Yes. Or the, or indigenous people are at the forefront of how to, um, conduct research or data collection mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. asking the questions like asking questions that are relevant to indigenous communities and not only that but i i will kind of take just take a brief mm-hmm. moment in history that native people have been very surveillanced and so when i go when i talked about the boarding schools there are um, congressional records and studies about data collecting and and I remember I was actually at Muskogee Creek um, Tribal College when I was looking at some archives and I found, you know, some congressional records and it was like, how many natives can read? And it was like, that was a statistical data set, right? Mm-hmm. Who's capable of reading, who's not? Like, when you think about that, it's really racist. Um, you know, it's horrible. But now when we think about data sovereignty, it's like, what questions are we asking? What Mm -hmm. data is appropriate to collect? Who should be collecting it? Who Mm -hmm. should store that data? Who should have access to the data? And not only that, but for a long time, researchers, our non-Native researchers came into our communities, collected data, but didn't really um, share out the data with us or Mm -hmm. misuse the data. Mm-hmm. And there's like a really high profile court case about misuse of data concern um, regarding Arizona State and the Havasupai tribe. So now when you have more indigenous researchers in the field, we can be at the forefront of those conversations, right? Mm-hmm. And we can educate our colleagues. So a lot of my position now as um, with AHEC is we do work with multiple um, foundations and organizations. And I do talk a lot about data sovereignty or even visibility. So mm-hmm. native populations are so small that sometimes we're not even visible in the data sets that um, that are even being collected. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this huge joke last year during the presidential election and CNN, you can actually Google it, but CNN just put um, something else. Like instead of saying native, natives, Native Americans, they put something else. So if you like Google something else, the native, um, native Americans, 
that this whole segment with CNN will pop up. So it like made us visible that like, you know, we're even like our populations may be small, mm-hmm. but they are impactful, like even in presidential or local elections. And, um, you know, having it was even shown last year that um, Arizona flipped to blue. Mm-hmm. A lot of it was because they had the highest native turnouts last year in voter in voter registration and in voting, you know, and it was largely Democratic. So I think mm-hmm. one of the main things with data sovereignty is visibility and then data sovereignty, who controls the data? How is the narrative being put place? So with AHEC, they have a unique database that's called um, AHEC AIMS, American Indian Measurements of Success. Mm-hmm. And it's a unique database set that looks at um, looks at um, tribal colleges and universities primarily in um, reporting out, um, you know, the um, university statistics, demographics, um, you know, first gen, um, so basically how the how the university is performing in itself and and who, you know, retention rates, graduation rates, um, what fields, you know, are, are the highest of population? Is it like in STEM? Is it in English? Is it in history? And so um, it's a really unique data set that's driven by the tribal colleges. And we're still thinking, you know, there's still areas on how we can improve it. But I think that's the fun work is having a team of indigenous researchers or individuals are good allies that support data sovereignty and thinking like how can we improve this data set how can we um you know what you know what are we missing what is going to support more of um tribal colleges or native students collectively and and then sharing those thoughts with huge um foundations or research organizations and like you know, we need to do better or or if you can be a better ally to us, these are the ways that you can. Mm-hmm. And it's always connecting them with an Indigenous researcher as well. I remember when I was um, in school, we had a, a standardized test done and it ended up being really controversial. And the one question I remember that caused controversy is where do apples come from? And it was multiple choice. And two of the answers were they come from like a tree, or it comes from the store. And this is, you know, just an example of that I have in my life of asking a bad question. Mm -hmm. Because anyone that was, you know, in a more rural place picked the tree. Mm -hmm. Anyone that lives in a more urban place picked the store. But option B with the store was the wrong answer, even though the kids were right. Yeah. And it's like, we don't, so often things get so messed up in in the world because we ask the wrong questions. <laughs> like just the completely wrong question is being asked. I completely agree. I have a similar story like that. It was in that pre-law program I was in. I was, I was, um, we had like us as students, we had to brief a case and I can't remember what the case was, case title was called, but it had to do with a lawnmower. And they're like, it, you know, it was a torts case. And it was like, can you start a lawnmower in a garage? And I honestly couldn't answer that question because one, I don't have grass. I've never, because I live in New Mexico, uh, a lot of our landscape is non, um, I mean, people have grass here, but I'm just saying a lot of it is 
It's like desert landscape. Have, yeah, mm-hmm. desert landscape. There's no, it's, it's, you use a lot of water if you have grass. Here. <laughs> um, so I never really had grass. I didn't own a lawnmower and I never had a garage because we always had a carport or we didn't have a covered, we didn't have a garage. So I was like, I don't know. I guess, you know, from TV, people start cars and garages. I don't know. So I couldn't mm-hmm. answer. And the professor was giving me such a hard time. And I literally had to break down and say, like, this is not part of my everyday experience. And the class kind of just like everyone kind of chuckled. And even the professor chuckled because he was saying, like, you know, one of your predecessors had a hard time with this case, um, court case as well, because her community lives in a canyon. Like they literally live on a rock. So they don't have grass either. So I think it's, you know, we've heard those type of scenarios for indigenous students like you know Mm -hmm. talking about snow when we think of um our kanaka relatives in hawaii like they don't you know the 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 closest snow they have is on mauna kea um but they don't have it in their everyday life so Mm -hmm. that's going to really be hard for them to answer and and even um you know in the going from new england to california I grew up in New England where there's snow and there's fireflies in the summertime. Mm-hmm. California, people would be like, what are you talking about? I'm like, you don't catch fireflies and like put them in a, no, what? Like, you've never seen a firefly? You've never had a snow day? Like, it's just, you, we don't realize how uh, individualized our lives are, even when it occurs that people are coming from the same culture or speak the same language, let alone mm-hmm. When there's so many layers that we have no idea, we have no idea about. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> so, so now that you are are in this program and you've already made the impact that you have, and you you see your calling, like where are you excited to focus as you go forward? And if you don't know, that's also of course okay. But like, what are you most fired up about to to continue making an impact towards? Um. So I will be finishing this upcoming year. And I think that's where a lot of my focus is. It's been, mm-hmm. it's been challenging. Um, and I will say challenging mostly for my, like, how would you say, like, there's this idea of imposter syndrome, right? Yeah. Like I've mm-hmm. struggled immensely with imposter syndrome throughout my whole career, my whole educational career. And I will think it, I think it, it was at its worst in the dissertation writing phase. And I think it hit me more when my father had passed. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I just got in my own head and I really had to work hard on overcoming imposter syndrome and just know that this is where I need to be. And I'm more than capable of finishing and I am going to finish. And um, it's okay to not have your next steps lined up you know, mm-hmm. but to be open to endless possibilities. And I think, you know, with having a PhD, I honestly didn't realize how many possibilities are out there for individuals with PhDs, much less women or women of color or indigenous women. Mm-hmm. And I am excited to be open to what's coming up next. But I also believe a lot in planning and manifesting. One of my good friends, Dr. Doreen Bird, I want to give her a shout out. She's always talked about manifesting. And she really got me on to like, how do you manifest, right? Like, what is it that you want? 
What is it that inspires you? What is it that you need? And she really encouraged me to pick up manifesting as a daily, as a daily or weekly thing. Mm-hmm. And so right now it's like, how can I work with my coach in manifesting? Because I feel like I, I have so many things I want to do that I could feel all over the place. And I feel like I just need that coach to help me kind of pull that out of me a little bit. Me too. That's why I have a coach. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, in finishing, I don't, you know, I want to be very focused at the last tail end of the dissertation. I want to be prepared for what's next. And, you know, working with a coach will help me get out of my own head in a sense, but also create better focus. And then, but I'm also really like excited that I even get to do that. Right. Because yeah. I know not everyone, like I never did believe in, I didn't even know what a coach was or what coaches did. And like I said, it wasn't until like I talked to some of my network where they were like, oh, so-and-so is a coach and I actually work with them. And I was like, this is what coaching does, right? So for me, manifesting, finishing the PhD, um, potentially becoming involved in some type of way with my own tribe again in one of my blue sky thoughts or one of my manifestations is to create um, a re- um, a research policy office for my tribe um, to implement like a tribal IRB for my pueblo um, to potentially have my own consulting firm for indigenous education and research. Um, to I mean, yes to all these things. Let's do it. <laughs> to to um, you know to be in the classroom as a professor, to be, you know, potentially a tribal college president, um, you know, all of these things to write a book at some point in time. Um, so there's a lot of things I want to do with, with, with my path still. And there's a lot of, you know, I want to travel, you know, I've, I've got a little chance to travel, but I want to travel some more, um, you know, and visit some of my my friends that I made from indigenous communities and eat like indigenous foods. And, you know, I want to sew like some of our traditional clothing more. And this past during the pandemic became a aspiring farmer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I have a little garden outside of my house, but I want to have a bigger plot of land to grow more more different indigenous seeds. So I think there's just so much limitless possibilities I want to do. And, um, but I think with a coach, I know I can figure out how to do all this and align it all together somehow because it all feeds into each other. Yeah. So I just think, um, you know, the whole idea of manifesting and, and gratitude practice really does inspire you to keep, to keep going, especially in times where self-doubt kicks in mm-hmm. and right now um I will say it's been really pretty heavy because of the pandemic I've had a lot of um people pass during this time and you know I've had two uncles or you know two uncles and one aunt who passed because of COVID and just know that they have always encouraged my path and one of my uncles you know told me I was the smartest person he knew. 
and I, you know, and he's just this macho guy. He was this macho guy. So for him to be like, you know, I love you, niece. You're the smartest person I know. And I would look to you for advice. It made me feel like I can't give up, even though it feels heavy right now. Um, mm-hmm. I can't give up. I have to keep going. And, you know, in my way, I'm going to take as much people with me on my journey. I'm going to encourage people because the thing is, is like, I don't want to be the only indigenous woman in the room. Like I want more indigenous yeah. women and people in the room with me. Like, you know? Yeah. I mean, usually I ask people what they think meaning a powerful lady means, but I think you just answered it for all of us. Like everything you just said to me is like what it means to be powerful, right? To take what you've got and run with it and to to be a stand that other people like you join you and to also give yourself grace because being powerful is exhausting sometimes mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like I love that when I asked you what's next you're like I just gotta get this dissertation done and I'm like yes <laughs> you know like get, getting your PhD is not is no joke it's no joke which is why once you have it you get to just like take a vacation for crying out loud if you want to because it's so much, especially somebody like you that has so many layers of what you're committed to and thinking about and, and you know, all the stuff that you're holding up at, at any one time. So, well, since I can't ask you that question because you already answered it, then I'm going to ask you, where do you put yourself on the powerful lady scale? You know, we ask every guest and we say zero would be an average everyday human and 10 would be the most powerful lady you could imagine. Where would you put yourself today and where do you put yourself on average? Oh gosh, that's a really hard question. Um, Today, you know, having shared my narrative with you and my story, Mm -hmm. so thank you for holding space for me. I would say I feel like a 10 because I have to remind myself of where it all started and how I got here. So I definitely feel this high right now of a 10 and like, wow, Daphne, this is where you're at and Mm -hmm. you got it. You're almost there. Don't give up. On an average, I would say sometimes it fluctuates between like a five and an eight Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, because, you know, as women, we take on so much different things um, within our families, within our relationships, within our friendships. And I just feel like, you know, like when my mom would say, like, there's never enough hours in the day. I feel like that because I'm just like, OK, I'm I'm off work. I have a little bit of time to write. I still got to clean. Um, I love doing Zumba. So Zumba is like my outlet, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so I'm just like uh, trying to hold it all together. So I think sometimes, you know, before Zumba, it's like a five. But after Zumba, <laughs> it's like an eight. <laughs> well and being someone who appreciates statistics i think i'll have to at some point turn over all the data of what every powerful ladies how they've answered that question because i'm sure it's very fascinating on a statistical level (laughs) um you know so for everyone who is super impressed with you and what you're creating and causing in the world how can they reach out to you support you follow you be a contribution to you yeah, so I'm on um, social. I'm actually on um, Instagram at daftlittlebear. Um, at daftlittlebear. So it's D A 
P-H-L-I-L-B-E-A-R. And I'm also on Twitter with the same handle at um, Daft Little Bear as well. Um, I will say that I'm trying to organize my social media better. I'm not, I haven't been the best in the past couple of years, but, um, you know, you can follow me there. I actually will probably end up creating like, um, I guess a public profile or business Mm -hmm. page in the future. So if you want to follow my journey, I'm there. I'm always posting resources, um, personal stories, um, how allies can get involved in indigenous movements or BIPOC movements. So you can reach out to me there on Twitter and um, Instagram. Perfect. Um, well, I'll give you one more, a little more space. Anything that you want to share with the people listening? Um, yeah. What, what do you want to leave everyone with today? Oh gosh. Um, I guess, you know, um, get involved. You know, even even if you know nothing about Indigenous people or, you know, just get involved. And it starts with following an Instagram account. It starts with signing up for a newsletter from a Native organization. You know, um, just get involved in communities, support um, local Indigenous communities. Um, you can even look up um, the ancestral land that you're living on of Indigenous people you know, um, you can Google like native land um, or even land acknowledgements and it'll help pull up an engine search of, you know, what indigenous communities around you and start there, support the local indigenous community, whether the entrepreneurs, the, you know, um, just get involved in community. That's always my message. I think once you're involved in community, it, it just becomes this very like different sources of information. Um, You can support entrepreneurs, small businesses, and to be a better ally overall to each other. And, you know, once you start showing up, Indigenous people notice it. And then they'll start like, being like, hey, we want to invite you here or invite you there, or can we collaborate in some way? But I, I think just getting involved in local and local events is good. I love that. Well, thank you so much for being a yes to me and to the Powerful Ladies podcast and for sharing your story with everyone listening. Um, You are a powerful lady and I'm so excited that I got to talk to you today. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for listening to today's episode. All of the links to connect with Daphne are in our show notes at thepowerfulladies.com forward slash podcast. There, you can also leave comments and ask questions about this episode. Want more Powerful Ladies? Come follow us on Instagram at Powerful Ladies. There are some free downloads to start feeling more powerful today. And we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast and leave us a five-star rating and review so we can find more listeners like you and those who would be excited to hear about these stories. If you'd like to connect directly with me, please visit caraduffy.com or follow me on Instagram at Kara underscore Duffy. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Until then, I hope you're taking on being powerful in your life. Go be awesome and up to something you love.